My guest today in the Reading Corner is Lisette Orton, and we're going to be talking about her debut children's novel, The Secret of Haven Point. This is a fantastical adventure that tells the story of the Recklings, a group of children led by the captain who live at Haven Point. It's a place of safety for disabled wreckers, and they're protected from outsiders by magical boundaries. The Recklings survive by causing shipwrecks, only those that deserve it, according to the captain, like her Robin Hood of the sea. They live off the bounty that they rescue from the sea, not unlike the popular myths that surround Cornish wrecking in the 18th and early 19th centuries. It's a world that is jointly inhabited by the Recklings and mermaids. The main character in this story is Alpha Lux, and we're going to be hearing more about her later. Uh, Lisette is a disabled activist and writer who describes herself as someone who does stuff with words. She's an award-winning poet and has performed at venues as diverse as the South Bank Centre and the Gateshead Sage, but she's also proudly performed in pubs and a laundrette. As well as being a solo artist, she's collaborated with other practitioners and she's the founding member and director of the Disconsortia Collective of Northeast Disabled Artists. Clearly, we have a lot to talk about. Welcome, Lisette. I'm so thrilled to be talking to you today. Thank you. Me too. We do have a lot to talk about. Uh, to begin with, I wanted to talk a little bit about the setting for the story. It's set in the northeast, and listening to you, I'm guessing it's not too far from where you live. Could you tell us about that stretch of coastline and what it means to you, and maybe how you requisitioned it for your story? So, um, Old Ben, the lighthouse in the story, is an amalgamation of two lighthouses on the northeast coast. So, there's St Mary's and there's Suter Lighthouse. And Suter is really near where my nana lived. So when I was little, me and all my sprawling bunch of Geordie cousins would get up to mischief on the coast. And it was one of those times where you'd take a Catherine wheel from Nana's marching ration tin and you'd come back before it got dark. So um, it's a place that I just, I absolutely love. And when I'm writing stories, place always comes first. I mean, who doesn't want to write about a lighthouse? So, yeah, completely stole that. But then when I was writing it, because it's somewhere that I faithfully love and know, I had lots of chapters where people were doing lots and lots of walking. And my editor was saying, you know, Lizette, why are you doing this? I was like, well, it takes ages to get there. And then she gave me this magic, wonderful moment where she said, you can move things, you know. And it felt like sacrilege, but so freeing at the same time. So most of the places exist, but I have squished them around for story purpose. Mm. They're sort of echoes of those myths around Cornish wrecking. And you don't think of that as something that would happen in the northeast because they're all sandy beaches. <laughs> yeah, We've got lots of pebbles and storms and lots of sea caves and Marsden Grotto, which is now a pub, that was blasted out by, I think he was called Jack, a smuggler who lived in those caves. So yes, lots of smuggling and business like that up here as well. Now, I was interested in this idea of a safe haven, something that protects the recklings from outsiders. And I wondered how 
that either plays into or against the idea of othering. It's hard, isn't it? I wanted to show what disabled people can be like when they're not othered. And the safest way that I found to do that was when they're in a with a bunch of other disabled people. And I acquired my impairments later on in life, so I became disabled. So when I found the disabled community, all of a sudden it was it wasn't exhausting anymore. There wasn't any explanation. There was a sense of humour involved in it. You didn't have to state what was going on, you just were. So I think the othering comes from society and the way that it sees maybe disabled people. So it wasn't a massive part of the book at the beginning, but the more I wrote it, the more I realised that to kind of make that point, they needed to be by themselves. You can see what joy there is. Yeah, because that idea of humour is a really interesting one. People think that they can't laugh. They have to be very serious. And that in itself must be exhausting, actually. Oh, the very earnestness. And then that leads sometimes to people tripping themselves up. And I think there's a definite distinction between laughing at and laughing with. And when you're with those people who really understand and get it, like my sister is the biggest mick taker of me, like known to humankind. But that's because she loves me and she gets it. And I allow her to do that. Some random stranger did it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure I'd be that impressed. But yeah. it's that with and alongside rather than at that are really important distinctions. Yeah, definitely. So this safe haven, um, you've already talked about the lighthouse, which is inspired by these lighthouses, you know, and you've called it Big Ben, short for Big Benevolent. I couldn't help getting echoes of, no, you call it Old Ben. Old Ben. But you see what I've done there? I've gone instinctively to Big Ben. And I was thinking, you know, they're both big, tall towers, but they stand for very different things. (laughs) I don't know whether that's just, you know, by chance, but I was just really interested in that. Yeah, completely by chance. Completely. I love that. But I love the fact that there were um, seafaring missions and people who looked out for for seamen and and their families and it was just this idea that there's this big tall building that almost grows into a character in its own right hence why it got the name it's like this their talisman it's where Cap'n with a kitten in his beard first went to build a place of security when he needed that and then Old Ben and uh, Haven Point has become that for so many disabled people who've needed that home and that respite and that that place of sanctuary. Mm. Let's just give our listeners that image again, because it's quite a remarkable one. This is a sea captain who grows a long beard and in it it's woven so that he can hold these kittens. Yep. That's amazing. Yep. <laughs> Do you know what's fabulous about it? I'd found the place and I'd had the beginning of a story and then I need to populate it with people. And then, although this sounds weird, they kind of tell me what happens once I've got this cast of people in it. And I imagined this captain with this long beard and he had a kitten living in it. And then I got really scared and wondered whether, because it was so unusual, maybe I'd stolen it from somebody else's story and then I felt awful. So I Googled it and there's this amazing Victorian black and white photo of a proper sea captain with a really long beard and there's this head of a tiny little black kitten poking out of it, which I was just flabbergasted by. It was wonderful. Oh, I love that. 
I don't know if that's life imitating art or art imitating life. It's a kind of <laughs> mixture of them both. I'd like to talk a little bit more about the characters, actually. The narrator of the story is Alpha Lux. I wonder if we could hear the very beginning where Alpha introduces herself. Of course. So this is chapter one. Here are the facts. One, my name is Alpha Lux. Alpha because it's the first letter of the Greek alphabet and I was reckling number one. Lux, because the box I was found in had Lux soap flakes written all over it. Two, my face looks like a flame-grilled jellyfish. Three, I was raised by a mermaid. Four, I always tell the truth. I'll give you a bit of time to let that sink in. Ready? And let's begin. I always tell the truth. That's a good one. Humour coming through there because she's sort of laughing at herself a little bit with that imagery. And it's okay to laugh at yourself as long as it's not putting yourself down. Yeah. If you choose the words that are used to describe yourself later on in the book, Alpha has a discussion with two of the other characters. And they talk about that there, how it's the importance of owning words and owning language. And if somebody else randomly chose to say that to Alpha, she'd probably duff them up. But her claiming those words and choosing it to say it herself, there's power in that. Let's talk a little bit about language at this point, as we've strayed into that territory. You do give us a very thoughtful author's note at the end so we can start to uh, think about how important it is that we use the right words. And, you know, the language that is attached to disability is something that's changed even over my lifetime. And it's very hard sometimes to know what's the correct language. And particularly a lot of our listeners work in the context of education and they want to get it right for their children. What are your thoughts about that? Language is really powerful and language is really important and language needs to be claimed by the people who are most often talked about. So for me, I think disabled is a really strong and empowering word and it's one that I choose for my identity. So there's no need to worry about using that word. There's no need for euphemisms like differently abled, disabled once you take away society sometimes thinking it's a shameful thing, it's a really positive word. So use disabled. Um, For me, I like to say I'm a disabled person because it's part of my identity. It's not like picking up a handbag that I can then put down. It's just me. Mm. Some people like to say um, person with a disability, but um, it's up to the person themselves to choose that language. But there's amazing um, literature out there, especially around the social model of disability. And there's amazing disability equality strategists and activists. And if you have a listen to some of the things that they're saying, you kind of um, you'll be building up that knowledge base and a space for discussion, which is really important, too. Let's talk about some of the other characters. So we've read the bit where Alpha introduces herself. But what can you tell us about Alpha as a character? Ah, oh, I loved writing Alpha. Um, she's feisty and headstrong. She um, always says that she'd duff somebody up if they did the wrong thing, but I don't think she's ever duffed anybody up in her entire life. Um, she's a really fierce friend. She's the leader of her gang of friends, and she also has a facial difference. 
And I was really fed up that the trope used most in literature is baddie equals scar or baddie equals something different about their body that the writer claims as that meaning like um, a shorthand for evil. So it was really important to me that she turned that on her head. But yeah, I love Alpha. I wish she was real. I'd love to be a friend. Really glad that you picked that to draw to our attention, because if we look back historically at children's literature, and it's interesting that one of your characters, Badger, is fascinated by the romanticism of pirates. But if we look at pirates in children's literature historically, starting from Treasure Island and coming forward, from because that set the model, mm. if you like, um, what have we got? You know, we've got blind pew, we've got somebody without a leg, and the more evil they are, the more disfigured. Is disfigured the right word? No. Yeah, facial difference. Facial difference. Yeah. So, you know, it's there in children's books. Yeah. And I don't know if you were aware of that or, or when you became aware of that. I think it's horribly something that I just took as that's the way it was meant to be because it was in every single book and there was never a disabled character being the hero they were either the one to be pitied you know you've got tiny tim so they're they're either the one to be pitied or the one to be like magically made better and your life it has to be rubbish until you're made better or you're the baddie Mm -hmm. and it just that's the way that it was and it just makes me I was going to say it makes me sad, but it doesn't. It makes me really angry mm-hmm. that that's a whole generation upon generation of people who are thinking that that's what disabled people are or disabled people thinking that's what I have to be and I can't be anything else. It makes me really angry and sad that it still happens now as well. That idea of being made better, not only being made better, but you got better by being good. Yeah, just the, just the way that it says, you know, if you do anything wrong, then, oh, my goodness, oh, you might turn into a disabled person. Isn't that the worst thing that could happen in the universe? Or, oh, you're good and wonderful. And look, your legs just grown back or something random. We can be a myriad of different people and different things without mm-hmm. needing someone to wave a magic wand mm-hmm. over us. Listeners might be interested in a book by Lois Keith. I don't know if you know it, but it's about disability in children's book. It's called Take Up Thy Bed. And it's lots of essays about that very issue. It's really interesting. One for my um, to be read shelf. Thank you. <laughs> Let's just come to some of the other characters. We can't introduce all of them, but we have to perhaps introduce Alpha's closest friend. That's Badger. Badger is brilliant. Badger um, has an afro and there's a big white streak through it, hence her name. Badger is blind. Badger uh, uses a cane and Badger is incredibly clever. Um, I think quite often Badger has more of the ideas than Alpha does, but Alpha is always going to claim them. And that causes ructions between the two of them uh, later on in the book. But again, just I think I think maybe it's the two of them. I hadn't realised till recently that it's me and my sister and the way that we get on. And, you know, that love hate relationship that is just really, really strong. But again, she was just a dream to write. I'd like to also think a little bit about the surrogate parents in the story. That's the captain and Ephira, who's a mermaid. Because Alpha is a foundling, isn't she? And part of what drives her is wanting to know who her mother is and whether her mother will reclaim her 
But in the meantime, she's got these two surrogate parents, effectively. Yeah. Captain, with his kitten in his beard, he's the one who founded the lighthouse and the haven. And I don't think he really thought that he had founded anything until one day he found Alpha in that Lux box. He had made a pact with the northern clan of the mermaids. Ephira is the head of that clan. And that was the first time Ephira came ashore. It was when he rang the emergency use only bell, when he found Alpha. And together they bring her up as best as they can in a very ramshackle manner with um, lots of mermaid feistiness and Capen teaching her about the world and about kindness, I think, most of all. Yeah. And mermaids are also an interesting character because mermaids as a group, if you like, because they have restricted movement when they're out of the water. But in the water, in their element, they are strong and they are free. Those are the words that you use to describe them. I wondered if there was a deliberate metaphor there. I don't think deliberate as such. I think with a lot of this, you don't realise what you're writing until you look at it afterwards. But yeah, there's definitely something to do with that fact that all of us, when we are in our chosen domains, and if we are given the tools mm. to do as best as we can, then we we can soar, can't we? And, and with the mermaids as well, I was fed up with simpering pretty things sitting on rocks and brushing their hair. These mm. are fierce mermaids with sharp teeth who do battle my mm. kind of mermaid. Just while we're talking about beautiful mermaids, there's a lovely quote in the book um, where you talk about the word beautiful being just too one-dimensional a word. And I really love that. Yeah, it's our beauty comes from so much more, doesn't it? And I think Athera and Alpha have quite a bit of a back and forth discussion about that and how it comes from within and how it comes from our might and how we can show that on our faces through through our scars and through our battles. And I think lots of people get a bit grumpy about the word beautiful, but I think if you take it in its full context and all of you, then it's it's a magnificent word. Yeah. Oh, there is one more character who I'd like to talk about, Willis. Health and safety. There's a sort of tension here between risk-taking and the, the risk-averse society, and the fact that you can't have an adventure unless you take risks. Yes, oh, bless him. Poor Willis Snotnose. Um, yes, he's, he's self-appointed health and safety monitor. I think he'd really like a badge, but no one's going to give him one. And it does mean that within a place where allegedly there are no outsiders, he is an outsider. And I thought it was quite, not quite, very important that there was the tackling of that, of this place where it was meant to be so kind and so welcoming that actually there's someone who has been picked on quite a bit and has had to kind of create this persona to get mm-hmm. by. So part of the story is the unravelling of the why of that, which in, in any society you're always going to have some people who can be mean sometimes, and I think, I think they were definitely mean to Willis. Well, wrecking is not a safe occupation and I'd really love to hear a piece of the action maybe you could set it up for us certainly so um every Sunday after a nap and after drinking their razor clam juice 
all the recklings go out always on a night where the moon is covered with a black sky and velvet clouds and they go out and wreck from ships so um large has just got them to blow the whistle and start the wrecking here we go the bay explodes into action. Large yells at the crew to haul faster, harder, as they throw their nets into the sea. I splash into the water to help, gasping as the cold bites into my thighs. You never get used to that. Working two per rod, the hauling crew hook the larger crates that the mermaids have brought into the shallows from the ship and drag them to the shore. The shore crew form a human chain to transfer them onto the handcarts. Heaving, yelling, the smell of sweat building, the harder we work. I call to the group, keep the noise down. Don't distract Badger. She's on top of the needle, perched like a meerkat, her ears standing to attention for any sound that isn't ours. Badger would have caught it if anything was amiss, though she's focused out to sea, not on the pillbox. But we've got the boundaries. We're safe. The mermaids are safe. No one can find us. No one can get through. Jericho's cart is filled first and he starts off at a cracking pace, grunting as it barrels over the bumpy, lumpy surface towards the base of the cliff. He passes it to the knock crew, whose job it is to securely attach the loop to the ropes and transport it up top. They put the goods in crates and attach them to the pulleys to be yanked up into the air and then hauled up the side of the cliff. The crates are always covered in white chalk dust that sprinkles down the cliffs as they bash into the sides. You can tell who's a member of the knot crew by their grey hair. I'm straining to pull a metal box on the beach, half in the water, half out, when I see the glint again. This time, no question, it's a definite something. My chest feels tight suddenly, like I have to remember how breathing works. Has Badger heard anything unusual? I look over, but the box blocks my view of her. I wave to catch Larger's attention, but he's not looking either. Recklings are notoriously nosy and rubbish at keeping out of other people's business. So why now, when I need someone to neb, is no one blooming looking? A thought thwacks into my head. What if the glint is only for me? Like in my dream? What if it is my mam? That puts a cold feeling in my chest that has nothing to do with night or water. I stand to look again and I mistime a wave. The box lunges at me, forcing me onto my back, crushing the air out of my chest. It bends my right foot back at the ankle and I gasp and swallow lungfuls of salty water. I try to yell, but the wave is joined by another that is bigger and stronger. The box pushes further into me, pinning me down. Pressure pounds in my lungs. In my mind, the glint flashes again and again, teasing me. This time, I nearly see my mum's face in its shadow, then black. Mm. They're desperate to find something of real value in these wreckings, aren't they? Like gold doubloons. <laughs> That's all Badger wants. All Badger wants is for it to be pirates, but it's nearly always just, you know, tins of food and post-it notes. We've got a really good sense of what this story is about now, but there is no story unless something threatens or happens the existence of the Recklings. So what is it that threatens their way of life? Alpha spots a glint on the clifftop and she wonders whether it could be a mam. But no outsider has ever made it through the boundaries. And that's where the story really starts, with the threat from an unknown outsider who has the potential to throw the entire world that they've built together into absolute chaos. 
Mm. Yeah, scary times for them. Exciting. There's also another threat, which is not so much um, the plot point, if you like, but there's a real world threat to their world with the idea of, you know, the, the coast disappearing into the sea and the tide claiming victory over the land. My dad used to work in Scarborough and I remember him being there when there was the awful time where half the cliff disappeared and houses just tumbled into the sea. So that's something that Alpha thinks about a lot. She's really worried that there's going to be nothing left to tell their tale and all the hard work that they've put in, especially Norma and Malcolm making the foghorn at the edge of the cliff all electrified and working amazingly. She's really worried that that'll tumble into the sea and there'll be nothing left of them. So there's a lot to overcome in this story. I wonder if they're all they're going to overcome it in book one or whether they may have to face more problems in book two. There is a book two coming, isn't there? There is a book two coming, but it won't be a direct sequel. It will be based in a similar universe and there will be little Easter egg moments where you can go, was that maybe? Ooh. And then we'll just have to wait and see what happens after that. It's been such a delight talking to you today, Lisette. Thank you so much for joining me in the Reading Corner. Thank you so much for having me. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. This episode is generously sponsored by Puffin Children's Books. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. If you would like to find out about other events and courses, visit justimagine.co.uk. Join us again in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.